Hey, we're unmuted. Let me transition. Hey, we're to unmuted. This. Let me transition to this picture of my face with an unflattering picture of my face. Hi, uh, and I'm going to go outside. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome outside. to Viral Transmissions. Heading outside for the healthcare cheer. Hopefully, my phone stays on. Pardon my disaster of a house. Uh, oh, I'm covering up the camera, aren't I? There we go. His disaster of a house. <clears throat> the dogs are barking. Starting. Soon. In my neighborhood, I always get so excited okay, about the healthcare wait. workers. Hey, I can hear some honking. Oh, he has a some, big, uh, big, big old here. drum in my neighborhood. There and as is. usual, the boat it. horns are going off in False Creek. Hey, Glenn, I'm streaming live. Do you want to be on the internet? Making noise for the healthcare cheer? I wonder if anyone is here today. It is 7 o'clock. I know the kids love to make noise. <laughs> oh yes. This is, uh, I live in a little cul-de-sac which is surrounded by my apartment. <laughs> Bob and Torin and Sasha are talking. I can't hear you when I'm out here. <laughs> Glenn's kind of our street captain. Uh, he puts these up just because he wants our street. <laughs> Glenn. Nice, which is great. Out of the goodness of his own heart. He, he's hung them up on... Uh, I don't know where everybody is. Marvin, welcome this is, uh, you might think, why is there no... You staying smoke-free over there? ...sign outside of Joe's house. Uh, it's because, um, pe people don't listen to it. They park here all the time. Driveway. I don't know why the kids honk, are making honk, honk, noise. Honk. They love the excuse to be loud. <laughs> All right, I will head indoors. I think we're pretty much done. And get a decent shot of me. inside before I can switch sources. Apologies. Now you're gonna see my terrible messy house. I'm gonna hide a bunch of stuff. I'm nice sorry. Carpet, Got a nice carpet though. Alright. Let me switch this over All too. Right. Let me switch this over to All of us. There we go. Uh, yeah, I could have been on the edge of my Wi-Fi. I apologize for that. Okay. Whew. Oh, Modoc. <laughs> the joke except me. What's that? Everybody gets the joke except me. Modoc. Oh, Mo that's the name of the character. That's right, yeah. Oh, he's sorry. a he's a villain in Marvel. Modoc. Yeah. Mobile organism designed only for killing. 
That's right. And and you drink coffee out of that? And sitting in a chair. <laughs> I mean, that's that's SARS-CoV-2. That's MODOK. Yep. That's right. It's I was going to say it's more just hydroxychloroquine. It's a perfect killer for this over. study. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, so yeah, it, it's... It's it's the it's the probably the most toxic thing with the best marketing ever since like <laughs> radium health bath. Mm. <laughs> All right, let's do the intro here. Greetings, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. I'm Joe Fulgham. Uh, welcome to Viral Transmissions, episode number eleven, which we're titling. We're starting with doing titles now. The zombie drug. Uh, we'll get into that in a bit. Joining me as usual are Dr. Rob Tarswell and Torin Atkinson. Our guest tonight is Sasha Malecki, a clinical uh, a clinical pharmacist. Sorry. Uh, I also going to note Viral Transmissions is supported in part by the BC Humanist Association. You can learn more about them at bchumanist.ca. Uh, we're really appreciative of the help that they've given us. Uh, and yes, uh, thank you. you should definitely check them out. They're, they're one of the good ones. Uh, I know that there, we've got a few problems with secular organizations these days as well as a bunch of things. Uh, I think we, we talked about this a little bit before we started streaming. We'd like to start off uh, this episode by saying uh, that there's no doubt at all to the viral transmissions people that Black Lives Matter uh, and that what is going on in America is just awful. Uh, and we hope everybody stays safe uh, stands up for what they believe in uh, and uh, tr tries to make positive change. I don't know what the advice is. It's not It's not for me to say, but uh, damn. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's, it's wild. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, Rob? Yeah. So, as you know, we have a bullpen of experts who we all introduced uh, through the first uh, eight or nine weeks of the show. And now when things come up, we can kind of tap on them. And there have been some interesting developments over the last couple of weeks in the particularly the medication world, uh, issues around hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, uh, remdesivir, um, some observational studies uh, showing we thought the nail in the coffin, okay, this drug is more bad than good. It has to go away now. Uh, now, there's a lot of controversy over that study, some other studies. Uh, welcome to the world of rushed science and the rush to publish the glamorous attention-catching headline. Uh, Sasha has had an opportunity to look into this in some depth, and there's a lot of subtlety in there that's worth kind of stepping through in a careful manner. So we thought, uh, all right. Time to step back and let one of our uh, sluggers come up to the plate. Although I've just kind of mixed my bullpen metaphor there. But here, <laughs> to either pitch or swing at some fastballs, Sasha Malecki. Hi, guys. Hey. Uh, hi. Thanks for having me back again. Um, and if you're interested, I, I was also on an episode of Politicoast on uh, Friday's episode. So we talked more about the political aspects of drug policy and approvals. So feel free to check out their great podcast. Um, so I think, where do we begin <laughs> with, with these with these papers? Um, I think the word of the of the week is, at least in the scientific world, is ethics. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I don't know why. It's, it's kind of hard to explain the concern that these papers uh, bring forward. Um, I, by no means, am I an expert in medical ethics, but I do have some. 
I have been involved <laughs> in research Yay. and yeah, and I know that you really you shouldn't be doing what they did. And so let's go into that. Um and I will be touching on Remdesivir updates as well and just kind of uh maybe we can even open up to the floor, see what we think about uh a question I have for all four of us later. Um so the paper in question, uh, let me get the full title up for you guys, uh, is called Hydroxychloroquine or, or Chloroquine with or without a Macrolide for Treatment of COVID-19, a Multinational Registry Analysis. So this was published in The Lancet on May 22nd. Um, for those of you who don't know, The Lancet is a very famous journal. Um, they do publish very good papers. Uh, but they've also had a storied past. Um, not every journal is perfect, but The Lancet unfortunately has a reputation of having published Dr. Well, sorry, Andrew Wakefield's study, um, not doctor, uh, <laughs> who is the guy who published the autism is caused by vaccine study back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I can't remember when it was. Um, that paper has been retracted so, and so took over... Yeah, and it, it took a decade. It does. It does. And 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 I think that's a really important place to start is because a paper, especially in a reputable journal, can carry a lot of significance medically. Um and and Never. not to mention uh the biggest problem that that is out there right now is that it seems like the world is in a, just a giant slow news day other than what's going on with with Black Lives Matter obviously, but the problem is that every single story about COVID is getting picked up. And so when any headline is published in a journal, it immediately gets blown up. And so the time that needs to be had to really dissect and chew through a paper and really understand what it means and how it was done isn't really there. Mm. So, um, yeah. Uh, the other problem is that... Uh, Actually, I will say that at the end. So we'll just get through the paper first. So um, what this paper is, is it's a chart review. So what is a chart review? Well, what they did is that they essentially just looked at patient charts. Uh, there was, I think they said there was 96,000 charts that they reviewed. Um, to give you a barometer of how large of a sample size that is, uh, among the most robust and largest cardiovascular trials that we have, which we consider like almost ironclad bulletproof good evidence those were fifty thousand people and so this is a ninety six thousand person study so already it has this uh, this um uh this i guess appearance of legitimacy so just keep that in mind um they they looked at the data from 671 hospitals in six continents so it's around the whole world um, and they looked at data who were, uh, from patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19 from December 20th to April 14th. So, okay. So clearly that's a lot of people. It's a lot of countries, a but size. huge sample size. Yeah. But my, my first question when I read this paper was how did they get this data? Who just gave them all this data? And so that's something we really have to think about here because Patient data is among the most protected uh, levels of information that we have, short of, I would say, military secrets, honestly. 
Um, there's a lot of processes in place to get these released. And so for these four people to get access to the data is quite remarkable. And we're, we have to talk about why, but we'll get there in a bit. So essentially, they looked at these people. Um, they had some criteria which they defined of who they wanted to include in their study. So it's called the inclusion criteria. And I've summarized it here. So what they have is they defined a diagnosis of COVID-19 as when someone was swabbed. So they put that pipe cleaner in your nose um, and they were tested positive. And this is within 48 hours um, uh uh, or sorry, the, 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 the patients were included in, in this sample uh, when they were started on therapy within 48 hours of their diagnosis, okay? Um, what the interventions were is they wanted to see, essentially, did people who took these drugs, hydroxychloroquine alone, chloroquine alone, hydroxychloroquine plus a macrolide, or, or um, uh, and all these were compared to the... Uh, standard of care, which would be in this case placebo, which they just did supportive care and all that. Uh, they wanted to see how they did. Um, their primary, yeah, go ahead. There's a a macrolide is a certain kind of antibiotic. So this is a hydroxychloroquine yes, yes. plus with or without an antibiotic. Sorry, okay. yeah, so, so, so it's a macrolide antibiotic. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's it's commonly used to treat pneumonias, and that's could be the reason why they added it on. I'm not entirely clear why this was the one that was studied in the first place, but uh, not really the 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 point here. Um, but so so that's a very basic definition of of what they had. But notice how I haven't mentioned any doses. I I still don't know what the average dose was of the patients who were in these studies. I looked, I couldn't find it in any of the documents that they, that they supplied. And so that to me is already a huge problem. Um, so we need to keep that in our minds as well. Now, the patients who were excluded from the analysis are those who were uh, on mechanical ventilation, which means that they were had a breathing tube, uh, or if they're receiving therapy with remdesivir. So that's that antiviral drug, which we'll get to a, a, in, at the end of the show. Um, the other thing is they uh, looked at something called a Q-SOFA score. So Q-SOFA, S-O-F-A. Uh, essentially what this tells us is how septic a patient is or how medically sick that they are from the infection. And because the patients had low Q-SOFA scores when they were admitted, it means that the patients at the time of their uh, start in the study, they were relatively okay is what this is telling us. So um, with that said, what did they actually want to know? So they defined their primary outcome as looking as the association between the use of treatment of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, plus or minus the macrolide, the antibiotic, um, with the endpoint of in-hospital mortality. So that means essentially they wanted to know, did people who took these drugs die while in hospital? That's all they want to know. Their secondary outcome, so this is what is... Uh, you can call it the afterthought of the study. It's, it's a really like very rough way of describing it, but was the development of what's called a ventricular arrhythmia. So for the uh, attentive listener from my last episode with you guys was um, 
ventricular arrhythmias are that really fatal potentially fatal side effect of, of taking these drugs. So they want to see if those happened, um, which we'll get to in a bit. And then finally, they will also want to see if uh, uh, they, they could calculate when the patients, um, if there is a propensity for them to get onto mechanical ventilation. So did they require it more? Yes. Sure. Uh, so just for, for folks at home who aren't sure what a ventricular arrhythmia is, that means your heart starts beating in a very fast and very disorganized manner and is therefore unable to properly push out blood such that it flows through your organs, delivers oxygen and nutrients, and takes away. And it can be uh, rapidly fatal if not rapidly identified and uh, reversed. That's right. And and to add to that, so to give you some context, uh, whenever you're watching like a medical drama and when they get those paddles out and they rub them together and go clear and they shock someone, it's because someone likely has that ventricular arrhythmia. So that's the severity of that arrhythmia is that it could be very fatal. Um, yes. What's that? Arrhythmias are bad. Well, ventricular, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's the preamble for the study. Um, the results, well, we can talk about them. I, I'm not going to really highlight them too much. But what they found is that essentially very short of it was the patients who were on hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, um, they were more likely to die while in hospital. They also reported data on people who were, um, who were smokers, uh, they had hypertension, they had so high blood pressure, they had um, high cholesterol, uh, they weighed, um, they were obese by definition, or they had high BMIs or body mass index. And there's a few other things that they reported. Um, what was interesting to me when I first read the paper was, well, when a patient took uh, hydroxychloroquine and an antibiotic or hydroxychloroquine alone, the rate of dying in hospital was similar to the patients who were smokers. So you think, wow, smoking is, a, we already know is a pretty bad risk factor for, for COVID-19. Um, and in general, smoking is not a good thing. But the fact that the drug was similar, or the, the rate of dying while on the drug was similar to smoking, that's pretty significant. But then, you know, I just thought back, I'm like, wait a second, does that even make sense, right? Because let's let's just consider that what is hydroxychloroquine even used for? So medically, as I said last time, was we use it for arthritis and for malaria. Okay, malaria we don't really use it for, uh, especially in a North American population. It's pretty rare that we use it. Um, maybe if you're going to go to a malaria um, uh, endemic country, you would be using it. But that's we're talking probably less than half a percent of people are, are taking it overall. Um, but in the rheumatoid arthritis population, there's a lot of people who take this drug and they're not dropping like flies based on what this study is suggesting. So, you know, you have to really think about, does this make sense? Um, anyway, so uh, the, the data showed that there was a risk of ventricular arrhythmia, which was that the heart rhythm we talked about and a risk of dying. Okay. Um, that's really all I want to say about the data because, it, you know, on the surface, you you read it, you say, okay, they have a lot of people, so 
all right, what's the, what's the fuss? Well, it's really in the details. So there was a couple things that, that stood out to me is that uh, normally when you have patients who are in two groups that you're looking at or multiple groups, generally it's a pretty even distribution. I understand that in a retrospective chart review, it might not be the case that it's even, but in this case, remember they had 96,000 people in their study, 94,000 made it to the final analysis, or sorry, 90, 94,000 made it to the analysis, and 14,800 people were actually on the drug, and the rest of them, which is about 60,000, 70,000 or so, were on the standard of care. And so huge uh, uh, problem with, with balancing the, the, the two groups here. Um, why that's significant is that it, the data can easily be skewed. Now, the, the, this, could be, this could have not been a problem if we were able to actually see the data and if more specific information was published along with the actual manuscript, which is the actual text that they wrote. And interestingly, I didn't know this, but um, there was uh, essentially a, a pact or an agreement that was signed in, signed in 2016 by a bunch of journals and, and I think a couple institutions, uh, universities and, and uh, health authorities, I think as well, that said that we will share data when there's a public health emergency. And The Lancet signed this, but these researchers and The Lancet are not releasing their data, despite having been asked to do so on multiple occasions. So red what that tells me is, yeah, right, huge red flag, right? Because uh, ultimately, the whole point of science is that a part of the scientific method is that anything that you test and you claim this is the result of my test, you have to be able to reproduce it. So what that means is if I wanted to run this analysis, so if I'm going to quit my job and lock myself in my room for a year, <laughs> I, if I wanted to do this, I should get the exact same data with the things that they used to make the analysis. And because they're not releasing it, uh, yeah, honestly, it's, it, it's a, you can it's do a, it. it's a cake, it's a cakewalk. Um, but but no, uh, it's we we just don't know what they're claiming, and you know you might think, well, Sasha, would they actually lie? Well, I mean, I'm not. Listen, I'm not accusing them of lying. What I am saying though is there have been cases, especially by researchers in BC who've identified this, that drug companies do take the data that they have and they're not honest with it. They're not actually reporting every single thing that they analyzed in the original way it was analyzed. So it's an inaccurate analysis. And this, this is really bad. It's, it's, it, it's disingenuous, it's unethical, and it's just wrong, um, especially in a public health emergency like this pandemic. So Here's, we don't even need to attribute lying to any. It's just, uh, no. it's, it's very, very seductive to really want that kind of bam kind of conclusion that hits you right in the face that draws uh, attention and notoriety towards your work. 
Um, everybody likes to be noticed. Scientists are no exception. And it's pretty easy to start to justify to yourself tiny little decisions along the way that then lead up to a very big questionable thing. Uh, and it's sort of like, well, can we see the data? Oh, uh, yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's and, and and I think you hit that they hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's 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 really uh, problematic as 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 a as a frontline clinician and just someone who cares about good evidence that when we can't trust something, that's that's the big thing is is trusting. Um, which I'll I'll get into more at the end about what the implications of a paper like this are. So, okay, so, so let's just uh, kind of talk about what the backlash of this paper was. Um, let's just uh, kind of There were a lot of people who brought up the same issues I brought up and made many more nuanced points. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about a couple things. So um, when, I, when I look at a paper, I never look at the news surrounding the paper <laughs> before I actually read it because I want to try and see... First of all, can I pick out the issues that is being picked up by the rest of the people? But also, I don't want to have a bias when I go into that paper. Now, Your method is one... more pure than. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm so, <a> sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, I mean, if you were to look at at the news, maybe it'll tell you, in in a sense, like, hey, keep this thing in the back of your mind and make your own assessment. But I I, I try and make it a little bit more difficult for myself, I guess. I don't know. I'm weird. But folks uh, at home, Sash is doing it the right way. I'm doing it. The right way. <laughs> so, so the one thing that you couldn't pick out from this paper, regardless of how much you looked into it, was uh, what the Australian health agencies said about this paper, because it was nowhere in there. So when they reported data from different areas of the world, and they classified Australia as one health region, um, the data didn't line up with what Australia actually had. So they reported a specific number of COVID deaths, which I can't, I can't remember right now. But what Pretty this paper, yeah, it was, it was like, I think it was maybe between like 15 or 30 deaths within a certain time frame. Australia and really good, you know, really good course with the disease. Yeah. And, and essentially uh, what the paper claimed was just not accurate at all. and. So, you know, you could chalk it up to error, okay. But the understanding that I had from the news articles and, and, and the rest of the things I read was that no, that this was this was pretty this was a pretty egregious mistake. Um then what what came out is when they repressed or uh, when the researchers in the Lancet repressed to rectify this mistake, they identified that, oh, sorry, we included data from an Asian population into the Australian data. Okay, <laughs> how? Why? And so, so these are you know th these are important things that that we need to know, and they haven't given more comment beyond that. When they fixed it and they re up or republished or updated their their documents, if you actually look at the supplemental appendix uh, or appendix for Australia, it said, I have to read it because it was it was pretty funny. Um, it says here, so for the proportional hazards model for in-hospital mortality, Australia, it says small sample size with insufficient mortalities for each subgroup to, to permit reliable estimates. 
what? <laughs> oh, okay. So that that's a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, what's going on here? It, it's it's just a head scratcher. Now, you know, I'm I'm thinking, okay, so so what what else is going on with the paper? Um, there was a fantastic quote by one of the authors, which I don't think I saved it, and it's too bad because it was it was. Uh, oh, here it is. Okay, so so uh, the the Dr. Mera, he said here that quote in the absence of a large, robust, and publicly available data set on hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, and the lack of scientific evidence regarding the safety and benefits of these treatments for hospitalized COVID nineteen patients. Um, this was the rationale that he used to you to to go and get the data from this. Uh, database called Surgisphere. Okay. So let me highlight that that one left the one thing he said, which was in the absence of large, robust, and publicly available data set. So he's acknowledging that there isn't an a robust and publicly available data set. So why did you use this? Right? Mm -hmm. Why bother publishing this at all? <laughs> yeah. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so in the absence of good data, I've used some bad data. Is kind of what he's saying. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> exactly wow. what he said. Wow. And 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 so, like, what what is happening? And and it's it's almost like like watching a Saturday Night Live skit. You know, it just gets more and more crazy. But this is all true, and which is almost like the entire Trump presidency. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm 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 trying to be funny, but it's just it's so not if it, working. Okay, so if it is going to be like an <laughs> SNL sketch, that means it's going to end with no actual good, satisfying ending. It's just going to kind of end because they're done with it, and then we'll move on. Honestly, that's actually pretty accurate to to the to the conclusion of this entire study because yeah. I'm I'm getting there. But so so with that said, like okay, the the apt question asked by journalists from Vox and and New York Times and BuzzFeed. And yes, BuzzFeed does actually do good reporting. Um, they they asked, "What's Surgisphere?" <laughs> the short answer: No one knows. <laughs> no one knows what this is. So okay, um, so let's kind of ask some important questions about Surgisphere. So first of all, what is it? Okay, we already said no one knows. Secondly, how did they get this data? Mm, did they like just? Did they? borrow it did they steal it i have no idea right you they you don't know they're not explaining anything and that's the problem is that papers like this like a huge data set okay they have very clear uh methods and very clear ways and appendix or appendices that explain here's what we did here's how we did it here's who looked at the data they sort of did that, but they didn't. And the other problem that this introduces with this Surgisphere data set is, okay, so like, are they cherry picking patients to put into the study just to make the conclusion they want to make? I don't know. And, mm. and, and honestly, we can speculate and our speculation could be valid, right? Um, because they haven't given themselves an out for this, right? So there's huge problems with, with everything I just said. Um, to, to give an analogy, right? It's, it's, like, it's like if we were going to say, okay, we're going to raise 
everyone's ICBC premiums, all right? Because there is a data company called Surgisphere that told us that you guys are terrible drivers. Here you go, right? Like, like it's just people would be outraged. But clearly, because the you know, there's only like what us four nerds and and other doctors who care about this that the the I guess the the bar for uh, for pu- for papers like this to be published probably won't be changed. Um, but that's me being cynical. I don't know. Anyway, Pardon. so it's really critical. It's really critical to get the correct answers on chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Yes. It is yes. a hazardous drug. It's not a benign drug. It has potentially yes. lethal side effects. And we really need to know the answer. And unfortunately, this bad study means that this zombie drug just keeps shuffling along. And now, um, because this drug has managed to make its way into the political sphere, uh, it, it's now, a, it's a political football. So all the people who we were finally able to say, okay, look, this stuff is, is poison. Stop giving it to these ill patients. Now can come back and say, oh, but your study came from Surge Sphere and it's a big pile of bullshit. And therefore we're going to just keep taking this drug and keep giving it to patients and, uh, keep screaming about it on Twitter. Um, it, uh, it it's an incredible disservice to what is not a benign drug, which may have significant and severe toxicity. We thought we finally had the answer to the question. The World Health Organization stopped its studies of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine because of this study. So it had massive, major rapid, which possibly was not deserved. Dr. Katie included uh, a statement, uh, a quote, uh, the Surgical Outcomes Collaborative Surgisphere Corporation, Chicago, Illinois, consists of de-identified data obtained by automated data extraction from inpatient and outpatient electronic health records, supply chain databases, and financial records. The registry uses a cloud-based healthcare data analytics platform that includes specific modules for data acquisition, data warehousing, data analytics, and data reporting, end quote. Okay, so and let me, let me jump in with my expertise here because I found their website. It's terrible. I don't trust anybody with a website as bad as them to be able don't to do data analytics. Though. Like, it's broken. Yeah. The logo's not showing up. The farthest back their archives go is last year with just a couple of links to some things. They have at the top a uh, our response to widespread reaction to recent Lancet article on hydroxychloroquine. Um which I don't know, I'm not going to read it's long, but it's, yeah, this seems like a bullshit company. Yeah. Dr. Marshall adds in the comments, I don't trust any algorithm that they won't share. And yeah. Yes. Nor should yeah. we. Oh, yeah. And nor should you, dear listener. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, when I, when, when I hear things or when I read things in studies that said, we validated this period okay and then the next sentence is something else completely different that's a major red flag for me right and that's basically what they did so and and i quote a manual data a, a data entry process is used for quality assurance and validation to ensure that key values are kept to a minimum so 
You're talking about a quality assurance process, which I have no idea what it was. You're talking about validation of your data, which means they took the data and they said, yes, this is legit. And then they said that they're going to make sure that this is all minimizing the error. Uh, okay. What do you mean? And and that's that's the problem. If you look at the other papers that are published in New England Journal and The Lancet, they explain this, right? They explain it clearly. And then, and you know, we still tear them apart for it just because that's what healthcare providers do. But, 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 but this is just bad. And, and that's, that's my, my, my problem and many other people's problem as well. So kind of to allude what to Rob was saying is that we have to talk about the broader implications of this, right? Cause this is just one paper, but what, so Rob was right. A lot of uh, the, the WHO has, has told others to stop studies. Um, there are medical ethics committees that are now saying, hey, is this ethical to continue our current study based on the, on the results of this trial? And, you know, you might be thinking, well, well, Sasha, don't we know the hydroxychloroquine doesn't work? And the answer is no, we actually don't know that yet, right? There, there is yet to have been a good, robust, well-designed trial, a randomized controlled trial that uses hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine versus placebo that is prospective, which means it, it, it is, we don't know, we're going in blind, we're going to have a 90-day enrollment period, 120-day enrollment, uh, enrollment period, and we're going to see what happens. So when those studies that are ongoing now that are being stopped because of this paper, we might never know the answer. Right. And who knows? Because I still can't say confidently that it does or doesn't reduce the treatment duration of COVID-19. So you don't know. And that's, I think, one of the biggest problems that that, that this paper created. Um, but also just and going beyond this, uh, beyond medicine for a second. So in in healthcare and frankly, in humanity, we have institutions that we trust, right? You know, I trust like, okay, what, 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 what do I trust here? I trust the NBA, for example, right? When, when the N and, and no, I'm serious. So, so when the NBA canceled their season, it made me think, oh, like coronavirus is serious. Like this is a big deal, right? Well, yeah. 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 It was and, so shocking. And, and so the date stuck in my head. <laughs> yes and 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 it's like like there there there's a lot of you know for for different people there's institutions that everyone trusts right in medicine and in in healthcare and in research right the lancet new england journal these are journals that we trust because they're good they publish very very important papers right papers Reputations that very careful what's that and they guard their reputations as well, quite fiercely. Yes, yes. Like mm -hmm. it's really, it's really hard to, to to get a paper published in those journals. Like we are talking, um, there's there's a drug called Plavix or Clopidogrel that is like the backbone of cardiology therapy. That it's the the paper that said, hey, it works for heart attack. It was published in New England Journal. Um, the Lancet has published. I I, I came in begin to describe what the number of papers that they publish that are that are important in healthcare. So these are really important institutions, but when they publish a paper like this, this calls into credibility the entire process of getting a publish a paper published in the journal. And so 
I know if you know, dear listener, you might be thinking that's a bit of a stretch, but really, is it? Because now it just seems like there's this bar that has been lowered to get a paper published into these papers, right? And the problem when that happens is that not only do clinicians start to then change their opinions based on a paper published in a journal like this, guidelines do this as well. The uh, the regulators would do this as well. And so this can really shift healthcare. This is a big deal. Um, Probably and one of the top five most important questions facing global medicine right now. Do these medications help in this disease or not? We actually yeah. need to know the answer. <laughs> and, and that's a really important point is that I haven't even begun to talk about the human impact about these drugs, right? There, there are people who might have COVID-19 right now who are in a hospital bed or who are ventilated who really would like to know this answer. Well, if they're ventilated, they don't really know a whole lot what's going on. But, mm. but my point being is that their families do, that, that their children do. And this is an important thing to, to figure out. Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, this kind of calls into question, I guess, like the integrity of just, of just scientific data in general. Because it seems like any, like, you know, like piece of shit study is getting published, honestly, right? Let's just, just look, look at, look at the COVID-19 data. It's not good, right? And so if we do this now, okay, even if the WHO declares the pandemic is over, how can I say in the future or, or like, or how can I say at what point do we go back to the rigorous standard of data, right? At what point do I go back to trusting the data? Because you don't know, right? You just you just don't know. And and if and and also the other thing I just thought of was, well, the journals can say, well, now our standards back up because then they admit <laughs> that that right. the standard was lower, right? So it, it's it's a really hairy situation. Um, Another thing, uh, so I actually presented at, at, a, at, the, at a national conference about, about research ethics uh, last year. And it was, it was a really cool experience to be there. And so I thought about the research ethics process of this, of this study. Like, who gave it to them? How? Right? What, so, so did they just expedite it and say, oh, it's COVID-related, here you go? Like, we don't know, right? Um, yeah, and not to mention, these are researchers from, from very recognized schools. I, I think one of them was from Harvard. Uh, let's see. I recognize yeah, Har- that school. Yeah, Harvard Medical School. I heard about that on The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, you know, th- this, is, this is important stuff, right? Um, and so, again, it's institutions. Because a school like Harvard, I mean... Is Harvard's entire credibility going to be called into question because of this study? Probably not, right? But still, it's it's just like a oh well, you know, okay, just because from Harvard doesn't mean anything, right? That that's what you you could have that thought in the back of your mind when you're reading another paper, which mm-hmm. is a problem because there are probably very good papers that are not coming out right now because the pandemic has just pushed all research aside that isn't COVID related. And so finally, finally. Um, I think the uh, the the real the real important point here is is about the the human impact, right? Um, people want an answer. People want to go back to normal living, and when 
a paper like this is published and then all the scientists push back and say, hey, what is going on here? People are getting confused. And then people start to distrust the entire system as a result of this, right? When people start to say, oh, they're bought and paid for by big pharma, you know, uh, uh, Bill Gates is trying to mind control us, like this feeds into that, right? When there's infighting amongst uh, acad uh, academic people, it feeds into that entire notion that uh, we're all lying, okay? So that's, that, that's, that's not, not good. The more uncertainty the people have, the more yeah. they just fill in the blanks with their own. Yeah. Ideas. Yeah. And so the I, I guess the question I ask myself is so how how am I gonna interpret this paper? Right? And 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 more importantly, how do I interpret everything that we just talked about, right? Honestly, I think it comes down to these people saw an opportunity to publish this paper and get a lot of you know street cred for for publishing this huge paper in a very very respected journal they had the data and they went for it i think that's all it was right universities are plagued with this problem of professors who are on who are either trying to get into tenureship or who have tenureship they may have quotas they need to meet there's a lot of grant money at stake and they need to publish in order to continue getting paid so I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know how these people got paid for their work or how they get paid for what they do. But this is a general thing that happens in, in academia, unfortunately. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, I, I brush this paper off essentially other like with the results specifically. Um, but uh, everything else I said about the, the, the implications of this paper that, that we need to really take seriously. So I guess the question I had for the four of you is how do you guys feel about that ethical question of lowering the standard, so to speak, when there's a public health crisis, like the pandemic right now, how do we feel about that? Oh, I feel like it's the worst time, like personally. I can understand the desire to do it. Like you, you feel like it's important to figure it out. But as we've learned here, lowering that bar is making it harder to figure out. Because even even if we're able to fairly quickly notice that this is a bad study, it wastes all of our time to have to now instead of go, well, this is a study that's been published by a respected journal. Uh, and so we can kind of trust it. Now we have to, as you say, go, okay, it's a study, but it, like, is it a good study? Because we've lowered the bar. And mm -hmm. that is going to just cloud up an issue where we even have people who don't believe that masks are effective now. I was somebody who was, who was a mask skeptic for quite some time because the evidence was pretty clear that it wasn't that good for inf influenza, which we, we thought uh, that this was quite similar to. But influenza aerosolizes, I think, is the big thing. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I think lowering that bar was a, a huge mistake. And I, I think that they need to put it right back up again. I think that mm -hmm. I think they need to come forward and the say, better, the better. we messed up. We messed in, in our desire to respond to this pandemic. We lowered our standards. We will never do it again. We're back to where we were. We're super sorry. Data. Uh, here's the data. It's crap. We should have seen. That's our job, literally. <laughs> like... 
I don't want to say you had one job because that job seems kind of huge to me, but like that's your job is to make sure that these papers are trustworthy, right? That's the, isn't that the job of a journal to let us know, yeah, these ones are good. You can trust our, our, uh, our, our, uh, uh, what's the word? You can trust us. Our, it's just like our credibility. Our credibility. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's not, you know, it's not the daily mail article. Like it's, it's an actual <laughs> supposed to be trusted journal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, sorry, Rob, go ahead. Oh yeah. So I think my take early on, if we look back at March, uh, back, we were so young then. Uh, I was probably in favor of getting science out fast and relying on things like bioarchive, which is what we call a preprint. And that's where scientists can say, okay, look, this is what we're working on right now. This has not been peer reviewed. So it's open and known that there's no peer review. And the peer review happens in the form of conversations over Twitter, um, mm. forums, feeds. So it's a different kind. It's a dynamic peer review process. But uh, it's it's kind of happening in an open and honest way. I initially was in favor of that, but then the problem was that a lot of science journalists were grabbing uh, papers right out of bioarchive and publishing them as if it was settled science, right? I mean, there'd usually be a throwaway line somewhere in the article about this has not been peer-reviewed, but it ended up being a kind of a... I, what I thought initially was going to be, yeah, we can we can go twice the speed we normally do. But the problem is that so much of the splashy stuff is just in general, the splashier a result is, the less likely in general it is to be true. There just aren't that many miracles out there. Once in a while they happen, but it's pretty uncommon. Science is a game of inches, not yards. Mm -hmm. And... So we end up spending way more time chasing down and undoing all the the disinformation and the misinformation that floats around out and you're just chasing a lot of pollution, a lot of just information pollution. When if we'd kind of done things right in the first place, there are ways to speed up the process that are okay, right? You can have an army of peer reviewers come forward and say, you know, look, I'm going to clear my slate and I'm willing to, to do this. Um, and you can have editors, you can hire editors, you can, you, can, you can do these things to make it happen faster from a public observation point of view, but it's still happening. It's still the right number of inputs taking the right number of hours and it's the right process. And you have higher rely, higher confidence, higher reliability in, in the sausages that come out of the black. But now um, we're we're at this precipice. We've probably gone over. And on the one hand, yeah, it'd be great if everybody could. All right, let's all walk it back from the ledge and get back to standard science done in the usual way. But there's no big boss of science. There's no pope who can turn around and say, oh, um, all right. Let's back it down. Let's back it down. It's a, it's, it's kind of a free for all now. So Lancet could turn around tomorrow and say, "Wow, we we really screwed up. Um, we're retracting this paper." You know, I don't even know if that's what's going to happen. You know, if I was a betting man, my, my gamble would be on retraction. Um, but the retraction watch timer is on. Who knows what'll happen? Um, but the New England Journal of Medicine. 
is gonna is just gonna keep getting hit with these papers that have these like amazing grabby headlines like wow 33% raise risk of mortality with gorillas and it's very very hard to resist publishing that because these guys they're chasing prestige and part of chasing prestige is publishing sensational headlines you, you broke uh, so up I don't on know. gorilla what was it with gorilla what gorilla psilocin gorilla psilocin okay thank you <gasps> Sorry, uh, you may not be familiar I, with that compound. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I I recommend it all the time at work. Um, but but no, uh, it's it's uh, I I completely agree with you. Um, the other thing I, I you know just mentioning about I guess like the economics of publishing papers. So, uh, for for the dear listener who doesn't uh, publish papers like 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 these. Essentially, what happens is researchers have a lot of incentive to get papers published in journals like this. So there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, we already talked about, which is the grant money and the whole um, tenure and, and, and all that. The second thing is that in, I, I guess, the, the, the cred that the researchers gain uh, in, in research world is when the, their their papers are cited in other papers. So cited means a citation. Um, and the way that why or how this is impacted is usually by who actually reads your paper. So there are a number of ways to search for literature. You can use Ovid, you can use Embase, you can use Google, uh, you know, just a simple PubMed search, whatever. There's so many different databases out there. But usually it's the journals that have what's called a high impact factor. And you guys can Google this. It's a, it's a score that shows the number of times that the paper from a journal was cited versus the number of papers that they publish. So that it, it essentially tells you how exclusive that journal is. And so... The incentive for, for researchers is that they see, hey, if The Lancet is publishing a headline grabby paper like this, maybe this random paper that we've been sitting on for a couple of years can get published now, right? And so they'll submit and this whole cascade, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, and another point I didn't make earlier, but uh, I actually, so during my residency, um, what I did is uh, part of our residency is we have to do like reviews of papers, which are a lot more in depth than what I did for this. And the Lancet, there was a, a paper that was published in like June of last uh, 20, 2018. So this is two years ago now. Um, in the paper, they, they talked about how aspirin, if you dose it based on a patient's weight for what's called primary prevention of a heart attack, that means before you get a heart attack, you take aspirin. There's a, there's a difference between the weight that the patient is and the dose of the aspirin that you take, right? There's scores of papers out there. there I think there was at the time that they published that, there was like 11 or 12 papers, the research studies that had thousands of people that said there is no difference between taking aspirin and a sugar pill. This paper in The Lancet it was, again, it was like three or four researchers who just took a bunch of data from those trials that they did previously, and they said, hey, when we adjusted it for weight, there's a difference. Hooray! And then you, and then you read the paper, you're like, okay, but how did you do it? 
right? <laughs> Look at these Again, cherries I picked. Honestly, yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And and so, again, it, it brings up this whole thing about, okay, like, who cares, right? And, you know, to, to put it simply, the, you know, I, I love tech, I love technology, but you can, the more and more data that you collect, right, I can throw it into Excel, I can throw it into MATLAB, I can throw it into, like, NVivo, like, you name it, any of these um data science tools right and you can just spit out a random result right and then then if you're a smart researcher you would hire a bunch of statisticians to just manipulate that data until you find a statistically significant difference and you say here you go lancet and you get published right mm -hmm. if by smart you mean well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but 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 really like like you know, the problem with this this whole thing is that this is the this system incentivizes this kind of behavior, right? And in a way, like, you know, it it kind of ties in like to this whole. It's like, okay, I'm I'm not comparing the struggle of of like uh, someone who's marginalized to this, but what I'm saying is, like, it is a very oppressive way of researching when researchers who are good people, right, are forced to research and report data in a way that is unethical, right? Just to gain that that kudo that or the or the or the uh, credibility that they need to publish mm -hmm. their 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 data in a good paper, right? So um that that's that's kind of my 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 whole takeaway with with all of this. But yeah, and uh, oh, we didn't even talk about the the. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Rob. Oh, yeah, we we, it's a it's a, I mean, it's a kind of a secret in plain sight, but we kind of live in an age of garbage science. There is just so much noise going with the signal that mm -hmm. um, there is just piles and piles and piles of crap getting published, and it's overwhelming. It's like trying to drink off a fire hose to find the good. And a lot of people just kind of throw their hands up and say, uh, this is just what it is. And, uh, but this is where, you know, this is where treatment recommendations come from. This is where I turn to, to try and figure out, okay, which medication should I use? Which dose should I use? How good is the evidence for this medication in this dose, in this situation? And you very quickly realize um, how poor the guidance is out there for just the, the average clinician on the street. Yeah, and and uh, actually, you mentioned the dose, so I was just reminded uh, there is a paper published in New England Journal that came out on. Let's see, uh, this was published May seventh. It's called "Observational Study of Hydroxychloroquine in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19." So this trial actually reported the doses which people took for hydroxychloroquine, and their conclusion was. Um, Hydroxychloroquine administration was not associated with either a greatly lowered or an increased risk of the composite endpoint of intubation, that means getting a breathing tube, or death. So, and this paper is being uh, used as a counterpoint to the, uh, to the paper that we just talked about. A lot of clinicians are saying, hey, this is a very well-designed paper, very robust compared to this late, uh, paper in The Lancet. And so now there's this competing thing. It's like, who do we believe? 
right? Um, and funny enough, these researchers from the Lancet paper, uh, they actually published another paper in New England Journal that got published May 1st or May 2nd. That was about cardiovascular, so heart health and COVID. And the question came out of whether or not it was that they, uh, the association between taking a certain blood pressure pill was similar or was, uh, uh, sorry, if the association between taking a blood pressure pill increased your risk of dying from COVID. And when this idea first came out back in March, which feels like 30 years ago now, what they said was, um, oh, no, everyone needs to stop it. There's an increased risk of mortality. And then you think like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, slow down, right? Because we know that the drugs, they're called ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Um, those drugs are among the most robust studied medications we have out there. And in terms of preventing you from dying from a second heart attack or dying from heart failure, it can reduce your risk of dying by like 30%, 40%, which is huge, right? So if you stop taking that, the risk of the people dying who, from COVID, right, is irrelevant because they're probably going to end up dying from heart attacks or heart failure. And so what, what I'm saying is, is that these researchers, the guys who published the Lancet paper, they they asked this question again after every single guideline said, please don't stop taking your ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And then they found, oh, uh, what, what did they find? I uh, can't remember now. Uh, it said here that they, that they it, it confirmed previous observations suggesting that underlying cardiovascular disease associated with an increased risk of in-hospital death and... Uh, it did not confirm previous concerns regarding a potential harmful association of ACE inhibitors or ARBs within hospital death in this clinical context. Okay, that sounds great. But again, you know where their data came from? P people dying? Just <laughs> there, it, it, it came from that, that surgery thing. What was it called? Surgisphere. Yeah. Surgisphere seems like uh, uh, tech bros. Surgisphere feels like a company started by tech bros who went, oh, you know what we as tech bros could do to totally fix this problem of medical data? We could scrape all this data from all of these online cloud sources and then collate it so it's super useful because we're tech bros and we know how to do stuff. Uh, these are the same kind of guys who've decided to basically create buses and then call it, you know, shared transportation services. And Yeah. 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 So anyway, I mean, I, you know, clearly I, I got very animated with this. Uh, normally I'm a lot more composed, but um, it's just, it's, it's wild that, that, that this is happening. And I think this is to, me reacting this way is more so a response to realizing the amount of crap that there is out there from COVID and it's going to be hard to recover. But anyway, um, so I guess I can give a quick update about another pile of crap, remdesivir. Um, so okay. uh, <laughs> um, remdesivir, uh, so let's kind of rewind a little bit. So um, remdesivir, uh, oh. just a quick refresher. 
is this uh, antiviral drug that was studied uh, in the Ebola crisis. Um, and it is uh, owned, the patent is owned by an American company called Gilead. Uh, Gilead doesn't even have approval for the drug to use it as uh, in, in humans commercially. It is purely a research drug. Um, in order to get this drug, you have to enroll into their compassionate access program. So don't think that you, the normal consumer, can go get it. You have to be admitted into a hospital. A doctor has to do it for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so initially, they tried to do trials with, with remdesivir. None of them proved in any good benefit. Uh, because of pressure from uh, the, the uh, U.S. government, they ended up pursuing research with, with remdesivir in a prospective trial. Now, when, so we talked about before how trials have a set uh, outcome and they have an endpoint for the outcome. So trials end as a result of a couple of reasons, right? The first one is, okay, we say the trials can go for six months. We're going to do it for six months and we're going to stop. That's reason one. Reason two uh, is the, the trial stops because we met our endpoint early. So that means that, okay, what we were looking for, we found it to a confident degree that we can say we don't need any more people in the trial. So ethically, I must stop this study because I don't want to expose more people at risk for no reason. Okay, so that's reason two. Reason three is the worst case is where it was so unsafe of a trial that people kept dying and we need to stop the trial, right? So whenever a paper says the trial was ended early, it's important that you have to look at why it was ended early. So this trial, uh, the Gilead-sponsored remdesivir trial was ended early. And the reason was because they met their, their primary efficacy endpoint, which was the uh, duration of hospital stay for a patient with COVID. I, I, I'm not 100% sure if it was the duration of, of, of hospital stay or was it the mortality. I, I honestly can't remember right now. I, don't quote me on that. Is this the, the point one is, published in The Lancet? Uh, no. Okay. No, it, it hasn't been it hasn't been, been been published yet, unless it's been published since like Thursday. I have no, no idea. I'm, I found one, oh, I found one from May sixteenth. So probably it's, not that one. No, because because the one that I'm talking about is is only it, there's only a news release of it in in on Gilead's website. So the actual manuscript of the paper is not out yet. Mm. Um, what's interesting is that they found that okay. The so it was the um, it was the number of days that you got the disease was shorter with remdesivir than when you didn't get it, and so when they met their efficacy endpoint, they said, "Good enough, let's stop the study." Interestingly, the mortality data when they stopped the study was no different between not getting the drug and getting the drug, and so cool right what what does that mean again we don't know and i can't judge this data because i don't i haven't seen the paper i haven't seen the results and it's too early to say but when when someone respected again comes back to that idea of institutions like dr Fauci, who went up and said this is this is a promising proof of concept i think those, those were his, his exact words it starts to add a uh false sense of belief to the drug 
And so we have to be careful. I watched it live and I was, I was, I was taken in. Yeah. Yeah. If Fauci says it's good, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and exactly that. Right. And, and that's, and I think, you know, okay. I'm, I'm totally speculating here, but I feel like there's a shift from when someone says, Hey, we have a cure. There's a shift from being initially skeptical, which is how we usually are, to now being um, excited and being less skeptical, right? Being like, oh, yes, we, we, have, we have a cure now, right? And I think that's in part to do with how serious this has been. This is totally skeptical. Like, uh, I'm just you know, speculating here. I have no data to back this up. But it just feels that way. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but just that's up to discussion. I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but I know one. <laughs> but I mean, how like it's 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 difficult to to make much of this data um, with remdesivir. Uh, I don't know. I don't know because uh, essentially. What I was thinking about is, okay, well, let's just say remdesivir, it is the slam dunk drug, right? The implications of it are that now this American company is going to have this exclusive rights to, to producing and selling this drug, right? Now, Donald Trump is in an election year, and he can easily say, hey, we backed this drug. Look at this beautiful American drug. You know, he'll use all his flowery words and he can use that as a point to win. So if anything, there is even more incentive to get this drug, you know, pushed as hard as, as, as possible. So I don't know that, that that's all I can say about it for now. But yeah, if there's any questions from you guys or from the chat, that's pretty much all I had to say. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys. I, I know that 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 went, that went on for quite a bit of time, but there's a lot to unpack. So I apologize. Mm. All about the unpacking on viral transmissions. This is the uh, the chamber of silver second, <laughs> the Senate, yeah, of the blogosphere. I feel like we have said we don't know a lot, and I think there's a lot of value in having the courage to say that. Uh, that that I think way too many people refuse to admit how little they know about something, uh, especially people who are supposed to be experts. I, I think. The, they, they're the ones who should be, look, we don't know yet. We're looking at it, maybe. Like, I think, like, a, a shrugged maybe is about the most uh, that they should give on these things. But, like, even that, who knows, might seem like a, too much approval. Uh, especially when people are, that's the problem. Like, we're, we're all so desperate for a solution for this. We all want that pill that you take that makes it so you're not going to have any bad stuff from COVID-19. But that's probably a long way off. And the the fallacy of that too is, well, in BC at least, and you know, in many parts of the world, we're what about five months deep into this pandemic now. Mm-hmm. We haven't had a drug out there, a super cure, and yet we're flattening the curve worldwide. Mm-hmm. So clearly, something we're doing is working, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, well, the thing, 
the thing that we know that works is is social distancing. We're finding out masks work. Like if you make it like the COVID doesn't or SARS-CoV-2 does not teleport from person to person, right? We we're pretty getting pr a pretty clear idea of how it gets from person to person. So you block that transmission. You're not going to randomly pick it up from nowhere. So uh, and then once we do that and, you know, get to where uh, New Zealand is. Right. Where New Zealand now knows, I think I think their last patient uh, who had COVID-19 left, has left the hospital. So it's not just that they've had no new cases. They, they don't have any cases in New Zealand. And now the only way they're going to get it is from people coming into the country. And they just have to quarantine those people for 14 days or, or however long it is. I'm guessing it's 14. But again, I don't know. Uh, and then once they're obviously clear of it. Then they get to join Our the people in, in New Zealand. Uh, and, and I look forward to when BC's like that. I, I think we had our latest report said no new deaths. I think it was 10 new cases that they had tracked down, but no new deaths, which I think was one of the first days in a while when we had that. Off. Yeah. The other issue, too, that the other thing we're discovering is where super spreading events come from. And that seems to be uh, there seem to be three factors. The three. C uh, so. Uh, so. Closed in spaces, so basically being indoors, crowds, and close contact. So um, the the paradigm example would be like a religious service. So everyone's inside, everyone's sitting together in close contact for an hour, and everyone's singing, which produces lots of respiratory droplets. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind Not of the paradigm like case this, of a uh, barely under your breath. <laughs> Sing, sing, sing low, sweet chariot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I am desperate for some karaoke time, but I can't even imagine trusting a microphone that somebody else has sung into. I cannot imagine it. It's going to. In an indoor karaoke. Uh, right. That's. Don't I, do it. It may don't never happen it. again or. Who knows? Maybe they'll start wrapping them in saran wrap for each individual singer. Wrap the microphone, sing into it, you pull it off, gets cleaned, you put another certain, like, uh, microphone condoms is basically what we're looking at. You heard it here first. And you sing inside a booth. Okay, now that we've gone into the silly place, it's over to you, Torrin. You think it's silly? You wait until it happens, Rob Tarswell. It'll be silly. That doesn't mean it's irrational. Uh, so I was looking for no penguin news stories popped up, but I found one from I think it was January. And just open it up here. I'll take uh, it. I yes. need my penguin news. January. A woman has apologized. This is from the Independent. A woman has apologized for getting too close to a pair of penguins having sex while she was trying to take a selfie. Uh, <laughs> Steph Ellswood was visiting Boulders Beach in Cape Town, South Africa, when she spotted a group of penguins nearby and decided to take a series of photographs with them to share with her followers on Instagram. Uh, she captured a number of different shots, including one posing behind a penguin as it strolled across the beach, another one that showed her smiling as they waddled in the rocks. However, there was one photo in particular that caught Ellswood's attention, a selfie that featured two penguins having sex. I'm going to put this in the chat. So everyone can enjoy it. The photo. Because See, it's, it's tune in live. That's right. Um yeah, you can uh maybe I can share my screen. Let's do that too, if I can uh 
might not be very large, but uh, let's see if I can do this. Enlargenate. Uh, share screen. Is that working? Do you see it? Do you see the picture of this lady? Yeah. <laughs> just on top of each other. I muted myself because my downstairs roommate is shouting at people in a game right now. Yeah, so there it is. For all uh, to enjoy. <laughs> but no one as much as those emperor penguins. Yep. So I don't know. <laughs> she apologized too. Does that uh, qualify as a threesome? Is that close enough to be to count uh, as a threesome? No, uh, you know maybe. Yeah, I'll turn off my uh, screen sharing now. More like voyeurism. I don't know if that's a threesome. Yeah, that's fair. Penguin for her, but a peng loss for the bird. Yeah, Thank she you. said she was just uh, oh, get absorbed out. in her uh, <laughs> photography and didn't notice that they were having sex. So. Thank you. And that's that's the penguin news. That's the best I can find. What if and it's the, not nothing? What if the penguins are exhibitionists and they like that? Yeah, that's true. Maybe, Maybe they purposely moved and they were like photobombing. Now, granted, <laughs> but but aren't aren't all animals then exhibitionists? Like, I, I I don't see like you know camels getting a like a hotel any any time recently. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're okay with it. But how do you how do you get how do you get consent from animals? We I think that's the problem with bestiality. Sorry, John. Yeah, yeah, pandas aren't exhibitionists. Yeah, they I mean, only they only started having sex once everyone from the zoo. There's nobody at the zoo anymore. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we've learned that. That's for sure. Wow. <laughs> okay, what a note to end up on. Um, so if, if I sorry. If I may, uh, if you guys are more interested about research methods and, and keeping the integrity of research, uh, and, I, and I did a lot of reading on this beforehand too, um, there's a fantastic uh, paper written by uh, Alex John London and Jonathan Kilm uh, Kimmelman. It's called Against Pandemic Research Exceptionalism. Uh, I would highly recommend that you guys take a look at this. Um, published in Science Magazine. Uh, it. It's a yeah, it's it, it's it it very uh, succinctly summarizes what we talked about. So, in case my rambling was too much for you guys, take a look at this. All right, there you go. Link posted in the chat. Check that out. Uh, Against pandemic research exceptionalism. Try huh? to remember to put that in the show notes when this goes up on the website. Uh, I have caught up on almost all the episodes out on the podcast feed. Uh, it takes me a lot of time to. I gotta grab the. It's a whole thing. Um, but I've caught up, so that's good, uh, or almost caught up. We'll, we'll get this one and the previous one up shortly. Uh, I think that's it. Anybody else have anything to add before we leave for this show? We're all done. Okay. Uh, thanks. Hmm? Oh, I was just saying nothing yeah. for me, anything from the chat, but I guess we're done. Yeah. I think we questions done. from the chat. Yeah. Doesn't look like it. Uh, the chat is the satisfied. Uh, bring the questions next week. Uh, we'll all see you then Sunday at seven. Uh, that is not a lefty guitar. I'm, I'm a weird left-hander. I do a whole bunch of stuff left-handed, but I write with my right and I play guitar. I'm not a very good guitarist and I need to practice more, but my roommate complains that it gets through her headphones. So I don't, anyway, uh, we will see you next week, seven o'clock Sunday. 
Uh, I'm going to start streaming a game almost immediately. It's not going to be the uh, Jackbox that we do, but if anybody wants to jump on and just do a chat while I'm playing, I'm just going to be chill. I'll be streaming on Twitch, but if you're on my Discord, which I'll throw you an invite to, uh, you can come in there and just say hi, uh, talk with me in the voice channel. Uh, I'm totally good with being a little more social tonight. Uh, and if there are enough people who want to play Jackbox, I will totally run it. We haven't had a lot of interest, but uh, come say hi. Uh, I'll, I'll send that link in there soon. Uh, so we'll see y'all next week word on viral transmissions peace stay safe thank you sasha thank, thank you, you guys yes, thank, thank you, you. Sasha. Stay safe everybody bye everyone bye See you.